Welcome to the Seven Figure Fundraising Podcast, the podcast where we discuss specific tactics and strategies to grow your nonprofit. I'm your host, Trevor Bragdon. Welcome to the Seven Figure Fundraising Podcast, the podcast where we discuss specific tactics and strategies to grow your nonprofit. I'm your host, Trevor Bragdon. Today, we're going to be diving more into our Psychology of Fundraising series and looking at how do you build fundraising habits. So in this series, we've been exploring different aspects of fundraising, both from my brother Terrence's perspective as someone who fundraises every day, and then my view as a behavioral scientist and someone who helps people design persuasive pitches and communication. So the goal here is to have a really useful conversation that you can apply immediately to your work as a fundraiser. So when it comes to fundraising habits, we want to look at three different types. So we all have habits that we do in our life, and they make our life a lot easier when we can do them. And then we all have things that we want to make a habit that we're never able to do. So we want to look at three different types of habits. The first one we want to look at is how do you build a habit for things that you like doing, but you don't do? The second one is how do you create a habit for things that you find a little boring, but you need to do? And number three is how do you build habits around things that you hate doing, but need to be done? So Taryn, I want to bring you in here. You've used a lot of fundraising habits and in our workshops, we talk about how do you build systems and build habits to make fundraising easier and make it more automatic for people as they're fundraising and as they're doing all of the tasks, running around, getting on airplanes, meeting with donors, all of these different things you need to do as a fundraiser. How can you build some of these habits to make it a little easier, make it a little smoother? I think this is such a great topic because the reality is that fundraising is all about getting over that conversation you're having in your own head to focus on what really matters. And just like you said, creating those habits that make you really successful and to stand out from all the other groups that are just as worthy and maybe even a little more compelling, but won't be as successful as you can be as a fundraiser if you have these habits. So one of the things that I really think about, and this uh, hits home for me this week because I had a six-figure ask of a longtime uh, donor earlier this week where I had to get on an airplane and go do it. I gave a talk to a local group as well as I had a lot of smaller activities with updating major donors on what we've been doing and accomplishing and what our plans are going into next year. All of those represent different things, uh, activities where I need to have habits around them. So one thing for me is that developing a habit that can be about how do I maximize where I am? So I'll give you an example. Uh, I had to, uh, as I mentioned, send an email update to some of our major donors. In my mind, and I coordinate uh, with our development team on this, it's easiest for me to send those out when I'm stuck on an airplane because this is time that I'm undistracted by a bunch of other things. I can send those out and personalize them. I can work through a process. And so when I have flights scheduled, which happens regularly, it's probably no more than two weeks go by that 
I'm not on an airplane, I develop a habit that's built around place. So here's the place that I do those kinds of activities, or here's the place where I'll get caught up on other kinds of uh, email communication. And so some of the habits are built around place. The other habit that I think is really important is to remove friction from the process. And so we've talked a lot, Trevor, about having a compelling pitch. And you have really designed some brilliant templates as well as worked with literally hundreds of people now. I think we're like 400 plus have gone through the workshop of developing a compelling pitch. And what's interesting in my mind is that's really a habit. Because whether I'm sitting down with a donor or giving a talk to an audience, I'm using that same pitch. And so for me, the habit is I know exactly what I'm going to say, how I'm going to say it, and I know people like hearing it. And so the habit is that I am repeating this particular performance or pitch or inspirational talk in a lot of different settings. And so why this is really helpful is I don't start out with a blank sheet of paper. When I'm going to do something, I already know exactly what I'm going to say. And it's just a little bit of customization for the audience, whether that's a donor, whether that's a member of the general public, that kind of thing. And so the habit really is about removing that friction and really recognizing this is an opportunity to be great because I've put in the habit months ago working with you on how to create a really compelling way to tell the story of what we're doing right now and where we're going. And that's a great thing about habits is it lets you repeat something over and over again, and it makes it easier to do. So I love how you talked about friction, removing that. We're going to jump into that in a second here about thinking through that. One of the ways that if you are trying to build habits around fundraising, we know every nonprofit's different. Everyone who fundraises has kind of a different lifestyle, different things going on. So one of the things, and we want to dive into this topic specifically, so we're going to look at how do you build habits for the things you like doing, but you don't do. So one of the things you want to look at first is the question you need to ask yourself in this situation where you have something that you enjoy doing, but you don't get it done is look for the bright spots. When are the times that you actually get this done? So your example on the plane is a great one, Taryn, where you tend to not be distracted on the plane, so you're able to finish these high-value donor updates. So for someone like you, you might look at, okay, I can plan updates ahead of flights that I know I need to take and go through and start planning that. And if you know you have a flight coming up, you can plan it out a few days before to make sure you have stuff ready to go. The other thing and the other question to do this is what's the difference about those times that I get it done versus all the times where I don't get it done? So this is where context really matters. If it's something where you have to do kind of a lot of thinking work, like sending an email that's high value to a donor, it's the distractions that might stop you from getting it done. So one of the things we're going to look at in this podcast episode is we're going to talk about this whole framework for building habits. Uh, and this was created by BJ Fogg, who's a Stanford professor, and he has this whole book called Tiny Habits. And the book specifically talks about how do you start habits 
And his theory that works really well is you start it by taking the tiniest action possible. So instead of committing, you know, if you want to get fit, you're going to run 10 miles a day every day, you might commit to doing something very small, like taking a run for one minute, something that's so easy that you don't have to wait for the motivation. So we're going to kind of go through and look at these things, but let's talk about like and think about if you're building habits for something that you like doing but don't do is think about the context in where can you create a space to get this done? So Taryn, what are some examples that you tend to think of, of things that you enjoy doing, but sometimes don't get done because of either the context or because of, you know, the situation that you're in that it doesn't end up happening? So I think a good example of this is follow-up handwritten notes after I sit down with somebody. So this might be a meeting where uh, meeting with a prospect or a donor and actually making an ask for support, or it might be an update where I'm sitting down with somebody uh, and just giving them a like mid-year update on how we're doing. And it's really important to send the a handwritten note. But I find it a little frustrating in that I don't like my own handwriting. So I actually don't like sort of how the note looks. I make a lot of mistakes. And so I was just doing this earlier today for the donor meeting I was telling you about on Tuesday. I had to rip up three cards before I got one right uh, because I don't want to have an error on a handwritten note card that's a quarter of a sheet of paper. That just seems ridiculous. So for me, this is about a couple things. One is removing every piece of friction. So I regularly have stamps and the note cards always in my backpack that I take everywhere. So I always have the tools necessary to do this. I also set kind of artificial but real deadlines in front of me of I know what time the local mail comes to my office. And so if I need to get it done, then I know I have to get it done by 1 p.m., because that's when the mail comes and I want it to go out. And so just little pieces of removing that friction, providing the context for it, and really allocating here's either the place or the day and time and uh, prioritizing it. And then for me too, I also think about what it was like to be on the receiving end of a handwritten note. Because the reality is most of us don't get a lot of handwritten notes in the mail. And whether it's a note to recognize, you know, really a tough time that somebody's going through. My father-in-law passed away earlier this year. A guy my wife worked with a decade ago sent us a handwritten note expressing his sympathy and wrote both sides of the inside of the card. And that meant a ton. It took time and thought and execution on it. So when I'm thinking about I'm sending this follow-up handwritten note, I think of the note Andy just sent my wife and how much that meant to him and to me and to my mother-in-law because we showed it to her as well. And so it puts me in the space of this is a priority thing to do. I need to do it because I know what it's like to receive a handwritten note and how much I appreciate the time and effort. Uh, and so I think all of that context really does matter a bit. And for me, that's a little bit of the celebration piece of it of, I know what this feels like. I want to delight the donor, if you will, by giving them that same feeling. And I think that's so smart. We're helping you increase your motivation that you have to get this done because it's something that you like to do, but you kind of need to be reminded sometimes of that end product, why you do it, what it's like to experience on that other end. So if somebody is going about doing this and they want to build a habit for something they like doing, 
You want to think about how do you make it easy to do? How do you reduce that friction? And then are there things you can do that are like one-time things that could make it easier? Like you mentioned getting the stamps all in one place, having extra note cards. Don't just have one. So if you make a mistake, you're frustrated with yourself, but have a bunch so you don't feel bad if you make a mistake. And this can just be a really easy way to have all of those things in one place and make it easy to do something you'd like to do, but don't do already. So I think just to move from kind of fundraising to another part of life with this, one of the things I never consistently exercised until about four years ago. The biggest difference there, so my wife and I, we have four kids. And for a while at the start, we had four under five. And it it was really crazy life because I travel when I'm home, I want to prioritize being engaged with the family. And so I didn't want to like be home and then say, okay, I'm heading out for an hour and a half to go to the gym, even though taking care of your physical health is a priority in a way to express your love for your family by being in good health longer term. So for me, that friction of leaving the house made it too high a cost. So the difference is several years ago, we set up in our golf cart garage, it's a Florida thing, but it's a real thing. A little garage. We don't have those in golf. Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> well, it'd be probably harder to run around on your golf cart with the snow. But uh, I set up a little home gym in the golf cart garage. That way I could be physically home, but still exercise on the weekends consistently. And so getting rid of that friction of actually leaving the house made all the difference in having a consistent routine. And now I know... This is the thing I do always on these same consistent days uh, on the weekend for me. And I don't have to think about it at all. It's just become this habit. But I never would have appreciated. And for years, like literally decades, instead, it was just beating myself up for not scheduling this time at the gym or not being consistent instead of thinking exactly what you said, Trevor, how do I remove this bit of friction? And so talking about something as seemingly silly as having stamps on you always That's significant friction. It's not easy to go and buy stamps. But whether you're at a hotel, they'll mail the letter for you at the front desk. If you're in an airport, they have mailboxes in airports, believe it or not, or at your own office, you can always drop that in the mail as long as you have a stamp on you. And always remembering, you can take the time to do one action up front, like building your home gym. You know, probably took a couple weekends to get all the things together, and it makes it so much smoother longer term after that. So let's pivot a little bit to that second topic on this creating habits for the things you find a little boring, but they need to get done. So these are like those tasks that they just, for whatever reason, you find it boring. So one of the questions you can ask yourself is, why do I find this boring? And looking back at that whole idea of thinking to the bright spots, is there a time that I did this consistently? So if you think back and there's no time that you ever did this consistently, that's okay. One of the things you can do is think about that whole idea of making a tiny habit first. So if you find something boring, so one example from my business is I hate entering transactions in QuickBooks. Even though I was a finance major in college, I find accounting really boring. So I'd like wait until the end of the month or two months and then go back and be this whole stack. But one of the things I realized is It actually isn't that many transactions in a given week. So you could break down the habit into its smallest part 
And what's that smallest step I can take action on? So for a while to like break that habit of not doing it and just start realizing it's not really that big a deal, I would go and the first thing I would do in the morning when I opened my laptop for work was log into QuickBooks and approve one transaction. And it was a silly, simple, and then I'd do it for a couple minutes because I'd already in it and I'd be up to date. And within about two weeks, I was on top of it and then realized it really wasn't that bad. I just had kept delaying it so much that it became this bigger thing in your mind. One of these things is just like doing that whole making a tiny step. But what are other things people can do to make those things that are boring that need to be done? What are other things they can do to take action on them, Taryn? I actually think you touched on one of the most powerful ways to combat this thing of things you find boring, but they need to be done. And there are a million of these in fundraising. Uh, For me, the equivalent of entering transactions are entering updates and notes in we use Salesforce for our CRM. And I find it annoying to type in just for the exact same reason you find it annoying to do updates in QuickBooks. So for me, the solution to this is to either schedule it and so just block off time, just like you would anything else. You know, it could be for something also mundane like expense reporting. So scheduling it is super powerful. And I love what you're saying of just get it done right away, which is also a great way to kind of pat yourself on the back for getting something done that's important but boring uh, and needs to be done. The other thing that I have, is, the other strategy I've used successfully is to tie it to something that I don't find boring. So I'll give you uh, the Salesforce thing as well. We document communications with donors in Salesforce. And so when I write those note cards, which I don't find boring, but it's important, I have to document it. And and so in some ways, the documentation in Salesforce is the indication to everyone else on our development team that this has been done. And so I link those two, like boring thing linked with thing I like doing because it's important. And it also signals to others that I'm following through. And that's just how we operate as an organization from CEO on down. So that's such a great example of that whole linking, liking, checking the box, saying it's been done, completing with the task. And one of the things you can do if you're creating a habit on your own, the QuickBook habit, for example, you want to create a really clear script and have specific, the more specific, the better. So by linking it to something you're doing already, you can use a script like after I do, and in my case, it was after I walk into my office and put my laptop on my desk, I will open up, log into QuickBooks and enter one transaction. So it's really specific, that tiny thing. And then after you do this, and this sounds a little hokey, so adding this disclaimer first, because I thought it was hokey at first, but what you wanna do after you've completed this tiny task is you actually want to celebrate it and actually like feel good about it. So think about a way you'd celebrate. Maybe you go up and get yourself a cup of coffee then, or you have a candy or whatever, just a little way to celebrate And it reinforces the habit loop. And you get a little dopamine hit. You feel good about doing something that you found boring. And it starts reinforcing this behavior that this actually isn't so bad. So that's just one way you can do it. Make a really clear script. Think about that smallest thing you want to do. Make a clear script on how do you link it to something you're doing already. So you're stacking those habits together. And then after you do it, Whatever that tiny thing is, even as ridiculous as working on something for one minute, 
after you do it, kind of have a little celebration, feel good about yourself for doing that much more on it than you would have done normally, which is nothing because you find it boring. So let's look at this final group, Taryn, on how do you build habits around the things you hate doing, but they got to get done. So before we move on, I just want to make one point that I think is important. I love what you're saying with a celebration, something as simple as a coffee or just that kind of reward to yourself, linking that with a job well done. The thing I would say is if you have a day where you don't enter that thing in QuickBooks, it's not like you fell off the wagon. You're a bad person. You're not following through on these habits. You just pick it up the next day. And for me, for years, if I wasn't consistent every day, The first time I wasn't consistent, it was like, okay, I guess that doesn't work. Throw it all out. When the reality is life happens, just pick it up the next day. And so whether it's a morning routine or exactly what we're talking about, it doesn't mean it has to work this way all the time. It's just this is a consistent script that really works well. So habits that things that I hate doing and need to be done. So I think one of the best things about this is that you can delegate it. So for me, one of the best things about raising additional resources is bringing on people who have expertise and talents that I don't have. And a lot of times that's doing things that I don't like doing. They need to be done and they can be a lot done a lot better than what I might like to do. So I mentioned I gave a talk earlier this week. That was yesterday. I got some business cards from folks and I wanted to just have a sense of, okay, what's their background? Is this somebody I should be targeting as a potential donor or is it more like somebody who wants to get on our email list because they'd be interested in what we're doing? I hate doing that kind of research. I'm not great at it. We have folks that that's what they do. And so literally earlier today, I took a picture of those two business cards because I don't even want to type in the information. So I took a picture and texted it to our connector, Judy, to look at and do that basic research. And so for me, that delegation, but also having an easy way to delegate that is really key. The other thing that I hate doing and don't do well is uh, booking my own travel, even though I travel a lot. Some people really like to do that and like to dig in, and it's like a little puzzle that they love solving. For me, it's a a selection of irritating things that kind of make me feel stupid and have a lot of moving pieces. And so I have a really uh, great assistant who does a great job with this. I'm low maintenance as a traveler, but I want it done well. And so we have a habit of having a conversation, takes about 15 minutes once a week where we go through this. And then she works through all the details of it in a really great way. And it's a much better experience than if I did it myself. And so I think that the ideal is things that you hate doing but need to be done. Figure out if there's somebody where this falls into a different category. They love it. Or this is a great way for them to expand their job and focus. And they're much more of a specialist than you are in this task. And this is so important on people really thinking about, especially when you're a fundraiser and you have to perform and you have to go to these high stakes meetings, like you need to protect your time. You need to protect yourself from doing some of these irritating things because you want to be on your A game when you go into these meetings. So I think it's such a great point. The first thing you want to do is delegate and actually hand it off to someone who might actually enjoy it or not find it nearly as frustrating. So What if people are in a situation where they're a smaller organization, they're just starting out, and you can't delegate it yet? So one of the things you can think about is ask yourself what specifically, 
What is it about this thing that I hate doing? What makes me frustrated? What makes me irritated? And let's start, like, if you think about the things we've been talking about, like, do I have ability to do this? And you think about, is it something, like, you mentioned the example of booking your flight. Do you know how to do it? Yes, it's easy enough to do. But then the behavior is maybe the reason it's become so frustrating is because you get interrupted all the time doing this when you're trying to do it during a midday. So if you couldn't delegate it, something you'd look at is, okay, when is a time period that I know how to do it, but it's something that I need to concentrate 100% on. So looking at the context and thinking about where is a place I could do this that would make it easier. And then the other way you can think about it is if this is something that once you get going, it's not so bad. So something where the friction is really high to start, but then once you start doing it, you're like, okay, this is not nearly as bad as I thought it was. I always just build this up in my brain. One thing you can do in that case is set a timer. And as ridiculous as this is, I have one of these timers on my desk. It's just a little hourglass timer. And when there's one of these tasks, like answering a difficult email or complicated email that you know is going to take some time, I'll say, all right, I'm just going to do five minutes on this email and get going. I flip the timer and you start working. And the next thing you know, you look up, the timer's all done and you've started and made a lot of progress way more than you would have predicted. The other thing you can think is the behavior itself that you have to do. What can be done to make this easier? Can you, you know, if it's answering a complicated email, you get multiple times, can I make this a template? Can I grab chunks of text and put it in a separate Word document or something like that and paste it in so it makes it really, I feel like I have progress on this. Even though I find this task irritating, I can feel like I'm making some accomplishment. And with all of these, whatever strategy you're trying when you're ideally delegating it, but if you can't delegate and you have to work out different tricks to get yourself going, when you complete it, you still want to do that celebration because you're actually forcing yourself to do something that you find difficult to do. And the thing that separates the really talented people and people who get a lot of things done is they go and they do the hard stuff and not just all the easy stuff. You know, they figure out ways they can get more done in less time. So really remember to think about how do you celebrate, how do you reward yourself when you do complete and you do make a habit for doing these hard things if you end up having to do them yourself. One part of this that's really helpful is, you know, we're all familiar with that 80-20 rule of the 20% of things that you do really well that probably has the 80% of the impact that you provide in your current position. And I think part of this is thinking through and prioritizing that 20% because it's probably takes 20% of your time out of a, you know, say 40 hour work week, this stuff that is high value, it might fall into all three of these categories that we're talking about, but it's the 20% that really has the biggest impact. And, you know, early on when I was just getting started, I used to measure success based on how many things got done which doesn't really matter, but it gives you that kind of dopamine hit that you were just talking about. But it might be getting done things that are in that, not in the 80%, but they're in that 20% of they take up a lot of time, but they're not really consequential. And instead, in fundraising in particular, that 20% of things that have the highest value, whether it's the note cards, the in-person meeting, all of that really matters a ton. And so you want to prioritize that. 
you had this great example, uh, the sports thing about how long people practice for how many minutes they play that I can't remember. But I remember it being really powerful because it showcased that it's not even 80-20. It's even more outsized. Right. In an NFL game. So these games, and they're about three and a half hours long. If you're watching, you know, the Patriots, we grew up in New England, for example, if you were watching them. The actual amount they play from snap until the whistle blowing the play dead is about 11 minutes of that whole three and a half hours. You know, there's 60 minutes on the clock, 15 minutes a quarter, but they only actually play 11 minutes. But it's the same thing's true of fundraisers. It's that just there's like intense periods of time, like you just said, where you got to be on your A game. And this is what all the practice, all the habits, all the training, everything you've done up to that really matters. And it's just very compressed period of time that you need to be on your top performance. Well, and what's fascinating about that is that 11 minutes, that's oftentimes, in, even in that donor meeting, it's 11 minutes of where you're laying out the pitch of here's the compelling vision. So even, I think that's such a great kind of framework to think about that it is a small amount of time, but it's super consequential and how what you do in prep how you really prioritize it, all of that matters a ton, just like in football. So to wrap up, let's just quickly go through what we've learned today. To create habits around the things you like to do but don't do, you want to start with the context of where you are on the times you get the things done and think about where can I reduce friction or what are the one-time things I can do to make this easier. And then for those things you find boring but still need to be done, you want to look at breaking it down to that tiniest behavior and then link it to the end of something you do already, some habit you're already doing. Link it to that with that tiny behavior. And then once you've accomplished it, make sure you celebrate and give yourself credit for doing that boring thing that needed to be done. And if you're in that category of something you hate doing, but it needs to be done, see if you can delegate it. There are, no matter how big your organization or how small, there's probably someone who can do that even better and really enjoys uh, doing that. And so see if you can delegate that so you can prioritize those things that you do really well and that have the biggest impact. And if that's not possible, really analyze what you hate about it and see if you can, just like you talked about, Trevor, breaking it down to that tiniest behavior and linking it to something that you're already doing and then reward yourself, even if it's as simple as a reward of that cup of coffee or uh, you know, being able to then focus on something you really enjoy doing after it. You know, Start out with the thing you don't like, but it's really important. Kind of eat that frog, if you will, first thing in the morning, and then do that thing you really like doing. And I find that one of the things that that people put off the most is learning how to be a better fundraiser because they think I really should do that. There's a time to do that. But I think one of the best ways to do that is to have a structured time where you really focus on it. And I think there's a great opportunity for somebody to sign up for that structured time coming right up, Trevor. So why don't you talk about it? What a Great segue, Taryn. You can come in if you're interested in learning more about how to be a fundraiser, how to have systems in place so you can feel confident asking for money, and how to have these great fundraising habits where you know exactly what you're going to say in these high-stakes meetings. We have our seven-figure fundraising workshop coming up starting this fall on September 27th. 
It runs for three weeks. We meet twice a week uh, for two hours, and this is a live online class, and you're able to work and dedicate, like Taryn just said, a couple hours each week to focusing on your fundraising, and you get to do it from your house or your home office, so you can actually apply what you're learning right now apply it to your organization right after you learn it. So it's not like you're learning it at a hotel, then you got to go back to the real world and you kind of forget half the things you learn. You get to apply it right then as you're learning it. And we actually just got an email, Taryn and I did, from one of our students who was in the class last fall in September last year. And he talked about how this class was transformative with his fundraising. He was able to double his major donor giving, but more importantly, is he feels confident asking for money. This was someone who didn't feel comfortable asking for money. We worked with him one-on-one on his pitch. We helped him find the right words to make it really resonate and make it people excited to give. And he was able to not only deliver his pitch once at a big event and really have a home run with that, but he also has given it throughout the year and been able to share the big vision of what they're going to do and move up all of these donors and find new donors. So this can be your story a year from now. If you wanna come and join the Seven Figure Fundraising Workshop, all you need to do is go to our website at the number seven figurefundraising.com or click the link in the show notes today. But we hope you'll be able to join us. And if not, just keep enjoying the podcast as well as we continue to share how to raise money from these major donors and different strategies for growing your nonprofit. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you're interested in our upcoming workshop, visit our website at sevenfigurefundraising.com. We conduct these workshops twice a year in March and September, and we've broken these workshops up so you can take them live online with six two-hour courses spread over three weeks. We'll send you a workbook and other class materials to make it really easy for you to follow along. In fact, this is what one of our students, Austin, said about his experience in our workshop. Hi, my name is Austin Brooks. I'm an executive director of a nonprofit called Midland Institute for Entrepreneurship. I took seven-figure fundraising 18 months ago. And since that course, um, two things I want to share. One is the results. Two is what I didn't expect. And the results as a nonprofit, even though we reach into 10 states, even though we're working in 320 high schools, um, we've always had a pretty small donor base. And what's been so powerful in the results that we've seen since this course is I've successfully been able to recruit and add some new donors that had never previously been given to our organization. And then more importantly, there's this idea that's going to be shared in this course called the dynamic dozen. You have to take the course to figure out what it's about. But within our dynamic dozen, we had five donors increase their giving in a big way. And between that and the new donors, this has been a game changer for our growing nonprofit. But the second thing that I really took away that really matters is just the mindset shift. What I I wasn't expecting was how much my mindset needed to shift, how much I had to shift my poverty thinking or my scarcity mindset to realizing that whether there's a recession, whether we lose a couple donors, if your organization is doing good work, more people need to know about it. And so the confidence that I gained in terms of talking to high level individuals who believe in our mission has just grown. And what's been more um, impressive than anything is the proof has been in the actual donors we've gained. So if I can do this, I believe you can. You can't miss this course. You got to take it.
If you're interested in attending, visit sevenfigurefundraising.com. We hope to see you there. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, please take 60 seconds to leave a review. Thanks a lot and good luck with your fundraising.